Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Uh, We have a special episode of Iron Radio this week. Uh, Coach Stevens, as most of you know, is recovering from a total hip replacement. Uh, and, of course, we'll check in with him next week. We'll be back to our regular format next week. Uh, but this week, Dr. Nelson and I were down in Austin, Texas, and we were at the International Society of Sports Nutrition Conference, and there were some cool findings there. Uh, you may especially want to note some of the work by Dr. Uh, Bob Wolf and some of the ideas unpublished as yet. Uh, but soon-to-be-published ideas about very high-protein diets and how effective they just might be. So with that, I'll go over to uh, the on-site recording, and we'll see you next week for our usual programming. Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm an exercise physiologist, instructor for GLOBE, and enjoy going to geeky conferences for fun again. Hello, I'm Sean Casey. I'm an athletic preparation coach, a registered dietitian, founder of Case Performance. My name's Carrie Hogan. I'm a personal trainer, sports nutritionist, yoga teacher, and sports massage therapist. I'm Corey Van Wyk, and I'm a strength coach and kinesiology instructor. All right, so we've got a big group here. Uh, we're going to cover the ISSN uh, annual conference. So we're on site. I guess listeners are getting a lot of that these days with yeah. Dr. Nel- Dr. Nelson and I doing this stuff. But And again, I think it's one of the best things that we can do with a podcast is bring you something that otherwise you you know wouldn't have had the time uh, you know to deal with, I suppose. We brought friends, too. Yes, indeed. Definitely brought friends. Okay, so we're going to go through some of the talks in order uh, that we have seen. Some of us will have uh, notes. You know, we have a, you know, this was a group of geeks, of course. So people have notes. <laughs> and we're going to talk about some of these things and try to bring some, uh, you know, new ideas, new concepts, that sort of thing. Okay, so on Thursday, there was this pre-conference symposium uh, and we're just going to do uh, hand the mic around here and do a, a sort of a roundtable discussion on this. But I did not see it. But uh, Brad Schoenfeld, if people aren't familiar, um, he's a Ph.D. And he was talking about manipulating resistance training variables uh, to maximize hypertrophy uh, and trying to separate, you know, real science from bro science. And I, all I can offer about Brad's talk in this first session, because I wasn't there, but is one of the things Brad brings, I think, is a very rational, well-read approach. Like, he's very evidence-based, and sometimes when, you know, at some of these meetings, the ISSN meeting is a bit of a lay academic crossover, I think, mm-hmm. and he brings that, like, cornerstone. You know, like, like he's just bringing us back to, this is what the literature says, he's fairly well-read, you know, and that kind of stuff, but... Yeah, absolutely. Um about the periodization, he was, he was very good about stating that, you know, periodization is a concept, not just uh, not a program. So, you know, using it in a, uh, as, as an idea, using it across everything from, you know, volume to load and keeping, uh, keeping that kind of periodization concept as, uh, you know, leading your, your performance gains and keeping your athletes healthy. And, uh, and and then the other thing that I uh, appreciated was him uh, playing towards the uh, tr- training load relative to training your type ones for a while or your type twos and making that applicable to your athletes' goals. Yeah, and I guess if I were to summarize what I what I got from his his talk, um, 
know, he really kind of by the end basically said, you know, there's a dose response to a point uh, with hypertrophy and volume. So that could mm-hmm. be a huge factor if you're really going to maximize muscle gains. Um, so, I mean, he, and he was a fan of uh, total body training for that as opposed to body part splits. So, yeah. Sorry, second thought. He, uh, he, he said to, you know, be comfortable with letting your athletes overreach for a contained, controlled period of time and that, you know, that can be really valuable. Just know mm-hmm. where they are in, in that training load and when to dial it back. Right, yeah. Well, that's where he kind of got into the art of coaching, you know, because everyone's going to have that volume threshold of this is not enough volume or this is way too much volume, and it's up to the coach to decide how to design the program, you know the science, now be a coach and implement it. Right. Uh, a friend of mine's an endocrinologist, and he, uh, he used, I'd bring him studies and things like that, you know, and he'd be like, you know, the tough thing is, yes, this is evidence, but, you know, because of nutrigenetics and uh, pharmacogenetics and, you know, all these individual differences, you have to take the evidence and somehow apply it. So like in this case, what volume overload is for one person is not for another. And of course, you know, Michael, your talk we'll we'll get to, but you can monitor things as you go along. You can use technology, you know what I mean? There's different things that you can actually try to keep your finger on the pulse of, maybe literally, you know. Okay, so the next one in the in that session that I did not see was uh, Doctor. Is it Klimzuski? Joe Joe Klimzuski. Yeah, Doctor Joe. Okay, Doctor <laughs> Joe. Um, he did a, a talk on nutrition strategies for sustaining health, weight loss, and physique. Do you guys have anything on that, Sean? Or uh, one of the big things he talked about was um, Taking things from different diets and realizing if you stick to any diet 100%, you're going to fall apart in the long term. So just not getting uh, so invested in a, in a diet where you fall off also, and that's where the binges happen, things of that nature. Um, you know, he also talked about, too, this is more um, on, you know, when you're first starting off, you know, being a little bit more detailed. But the goal of any good coach is to get the people they're working with uh, the, the ability to create their own meals on their own, you know, not continuously have someone for years on end where they feel like they need to have you in your corner. It's the ability to educate people, to empower them to make their own healthy choices. Yeah, absolutely. Coaching people towards independence and uh, education being a, a key aspect of, of you know, helping someone develop their own tools to be flexible as well, to not be terrified if uh, they're going out for a meal and you know, they feel like they're just going to fall apart and they, they don't know what to order, uh, really giving someone the, the resources of, of knowledge in, in that way. And, uh, and, and being able to question yourself as well, you know, not getting super dogmatic, uh, as Sean said, you know, about one diet, being able to question your own ideas if you're getting antsy, you know, if you have a a client who's vegetarian or or vegan, for example, just being able to to say, you know, if you're getting really concerned, say, if they're not meeting the kind of protein intake that that you may like them to ideally be, be reaching, you know, to maybe just be able to say, all right, well, you know, Maybe that's not going to happen for this person, but we can still optimize. We can still, you know, do well by this client. Yeah, I I really appreciated how he was big on meeting the client where they were at. Mm. You know, not trying to pigeonhole any client into any specific way of coaching or way of eating. So whether he himself agreed with it or not, he would find a way to get them to, to... consume a diet or a way of eating or a plan that they could stick to. Um, whether that's meeting the exact protein requirements, like you said, uh, that he would like them to eat, but, uh, you know, he'd take c- components. In, so he's familiar with all different diets, mm-hmm. so he could, you know, effectively coach someone who maybe doesn't want to follow a paleo or low-carb ketogenic diet. Right, so. right. Yeah, yeah there, there's such a trend for template diets, low-carb, paleo, follow this, don't that. And even even with dietetic students, Sean, you can probably speak to this, but one of the things I was always concerned about, they'd say, here's what you, here's the action plan for uncomplicated hypertension. You just do this. And Mm -hmm. if you don't have a depth of knowledge about metabolism and physiology and that sort of thing, 
what happens when something is anomalous with that patient or that client? You're like, oh my God, now what do I do? You know what I mean? So you don't have that flexibility or, you know, when we talk about individual differences, I tend to think on the biology side, but what about psychological, social differences? You know what I mean? These have huge impacts on, on what you do. Uh, I did see the, the last talk, again, this was a pre-conference symposium on Thursday, a couple of days ago now, so maybe if you hear that any of us are a little strung out, that's, that's, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> but Sohi Walsh uh, gave a talk. She's a little uh, dynamo. Uh, she was talking about um, dietary adherence. Because, again, I think one of the, the tough things about this is, like we were just talking about, you can't just give somebody a, a template and say, follow this. And you know, expect them to adhere to it. And uh, I wrote one thing about her talk. You know, you're always looking for these gold nuggets. And one of the things that she said that she's seen in her own practice, and you know, she's still young, but you could tell she's not only she's a physique competitor herself, right? And she also has cl- clients. But uh, it, she said, change the environment, and behaviors will change by default. And I think that's very interesting, right? So, like, if you don't want to eat something, don't go buy it. Like, a lot of the choices are actually made at the grocery store or even before the grocery store. Like, what's your grocery list? Because if you don't buy it, you know, how if that's a behavior you no longer have to correct. If you've got a problem where you eat cheese curls and you eat a whole bag at a time, you know, here's an idea. Don't buy them. Change the environment. So I, I just thought that was very wise. I mean, I don't want to sound like the old fart. Like, oh, she's very young to see something like that, for that to sink in like that. But... That's brilliant, right? Because she's like, you know, change, you know, change the environment itself. And uh, another very, again, very rational example of that idea was she said, you know, if you're concerned about eating out, pre-select somewhere that you know has healthy options. And so, you know, you're not going to be walking into a place already at, you know, at a deficit based on what, what's on the menu. Sean, did you have any thoughts on, did you see that? Yeah, I saw that. And, you know, when she was talking about changing the environment, kind of like Dr. Lowry was saying, you know, I know, you know, when I'm working <clears throat> with athletes and they're trying to clean up their diets, I always tell them to literally make a grocery list before you go on. Like, going to the grocery store without having some sort of shopping list is like going into the weight room and having absolutely no idea what you're going to do. All of a sudden you get the weight room, oh, I think I'm going to do arms today. Oh, I think I'm going to do this today. Nobody you does know. that. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, just so, you know, that's one thing I – always emphasizes, you know, create a plan for shopping no different than how you create a plan going into a training session. I just had one, one not, I wasn't able to see her talk, unfortunately, um, but one thing about the controlling your environment, which I totally agree with, and then if you remove something from the client and it makes them, like, utterly stressed out, so you say, you can never have ice cream, I never want you to buy ice cream again, and they just start losing their mind, I'll have them buy a smaller amount of ice cream and then literally put it in a different freezer or put it in a different location, or if you buy a 12-pack of cookies, buy six, but don't put them in the same corner of the cupboard all the time. Put them somewhere else. Put them in tinfoil. Do anything that you have to think more and become more conscious about it, but you haven't told them that this is off-limits the rest of your life. So, um, <clears throat> Okay, yeah, so, you know, I want to revisit one last thing really quickly, too. Uh, I did catch... Um, Again, and again, this is like a pre-conference symposium. I think they're going to do it again in the future because it was pretty well attended, yeah. I think. Uh, one of the, one, one, uh, there was a question for Dr. Schoenfeld, for Brad, uh, and they, they were asking him about what is the ideal intensity and volume threshold, mm-hmm. you know. And he said there's a – his response to that often is just two words, it depends – Right, and I just think that's interesting too, because like we were talking about, that's where the coach, whether it's nutrition or exercise, there's so many similarities, and you're trying to get people to change behaviors, and there's individual differences, and it depends, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I think about Fortress, sometimes I refer to Rob because he has a ridiculous tolerance for volume, mm-hmm. you know, like ten sets of ten with three fifteen. That's ridiculous, and he doesn't get sore from that. He's so I don't know. It it, it was interesting that again, what are people expecting? They're like. Tell what's the magic template? What's the number of sets and reps that everybody needs? You know, and Brad's like, I I can't even answer that. Anyway, um, so that was a pre-conference symposium. We're not going to get through the whole conference because we're recording this halfway through. Of course, um, we'll see what we can come up with uh, today. But uh, on Friday there were um, some talks, and I should probably digress a little. There are two tracks here, right? There's a research track for the nerds, and I know we have some nerdy listeners. Uh, but there's also an applied track 
so these are running at the same time, and sometimes you're torn, like which one do I go to? So uh, we're just going to send send the mic around here and you know ask everybody what they saw. But um, the first round of early morning talks, I did not go to these, but uh, Rick Kreider uh, did a talk on uh, an update on creatine supplementation. Did anybody see that? Yeah, it was it was very good. It was a nice summary of the literature. Um, some of the high points I thought it's, it's very interesting. There's been some very cool literature looking at um, injury, and what they did was 21 months uh, college football players taking five grams a day, and they saw no difference in injuries between the groups. Obviously, they had one group taking the five grams of the group that didn't. Um, some thermoregulation stuff, which was interesting that. Creatine may actually help you regulate heat, especially in hot temperatures, may actually increase uh, hydration. So a lot of the myths are like, oh, it's going to make you cramp, and oh, you're going to dehydrate, and um, all that stuff didn't really appear to be true. Um, Last thing, and I'll pass it on, is that some really cool stuff on uh, neuroprotection. We saw a great talk by uh, Dr. Mark Tarnopolsky here last year on neuroprotective effects of creatine so people can check out that show from last year um but yeah very interesting the hard part is it's hard to recreate a lot of those studies sometimes in humans and even now we had a discussion afterwards about new ways with even you know mouse and rat data of maybe something a little bit more civilized instead of having the study where they whacked the mice on the head who had creatine the ones who didn't um so (laughs) Not going to sign up for the human studies of that, but what they were showing is that in general it appears to have some very cool uh, neuroprotective effects and a lot more research to sort that out. Well, yeah, I I can't reference any particular paper, but over a glass of wine I was talking with Dr. (laughs) Krager about some of those things, and he was talking about the dose, like how high the dose, you know, is for some of these neurological effects and stuff, but the funnest part, I think, of our conversation was that so often, like you're saying with, oh, should I let little Johnny take creatine, isn't that a muscle-building supplement, almost, you know, ergo, it's it's an ergogenic aid, and therefore, (laughs) it's steroids, you know, and just nonsense like that, but this is a case where you've got something that the quote-unquote meatheads did it for muscle-building purposes, performance purposes. And like you said, what's fascinating me more and more is that it's a general health supplement. I mean, it reduces cognitive decline or, you know, helps antidepressant meds work better. Or, you know, that's the kind of stuff where for all of the critique, I think, that the the muscle heads get for guinea-pigging themselves, this is one of those things that work, quote-unquote worked yeah. for performance, and now it's it's being borrowed by the clinicians, you know, because so often the, his- yeah. the history has been, you know, Sean, you know what dietetics is like, like a lot of early, early years sports nutrition, we would borrow, like what's a clinical nutritionist doing in a post-surgical setting to prevent muscle loss, you know, or cachectic disease where they lose their muscle mass or, and this is the opposite, right? This is the sports nutrition stuff becoming general health. And I, I'm guessing most of our listeners probably have considered or regularly use creatine. And I got to the point where I just put like three grams of my coffee every morning because regardless of what I'm doing with it, I mean, as far as where I am in my training, I just do that, you know. Um, now, did anybody see there was a, a simultaneous talk from Consumer Lab? Um, luckily, we had... <laughs> We had those guys on the show a couple of years ago. If, if you're interested, they do um, product testing and that sort of stuff. But instead of trying to police it and be very negative, they um, they work with supplement companies. Their paradigm was just different. You know, the whole idea is if there's something contaminated, let's get it out of there. You know what I mean? Um, so we can't speak to that now. But if you are interested, I, I, I don't know, go back to like, the, I think, 2014, maybe even 2013. But... Uh, yeah, we had some of the guys from Consumer Lab on it. It was an interesting um, talk because I think we need a certain amount of like QA, like quality assurance in our field. You can't just have comp- competing companies trying to police each other, you know, and it's got to be cooperative and all that. But uh, Next up, uh, I was sitting in the research track, uh, Darren Willoughby, Dr. Willoughby, uh, if listeners aren't familiar, he's a huge like he's national caliber bodybuilder right and a professor and not only professor but he's he's very heavy on the molecular side of things you know what i mean so he really completely shatters this myth that of the dumb you know bodybuilder type thing but he was talking about l-citrulline uh and uh, glutathione supplementation 
and what it does for like nitric oxide, uh, you know, NO and all this sort of thing. And I mean, I don't want to take away a lot from what he was saying. Let me offer some quick definitions and then my impression, then I'll, I'll hand the mic over. But um, he's a professor at Baylor and the talk was sponsored by a Kiowa. Is that how you say it? Um, Kiowa, yeah. Kiowa, um, who, you know, they, they sell citrulline and glutathione products and whatnot, but L-citrulline is a, it's a dispensable amino acid, right? It's not essential amino acid, but apparently it's an NO, it's a nitric oxide stimulator, uh, and it may actually be superior to the arginine that so many people use because it sort of bypasses an enzymatic step that destroys arginine and this and that. And my takeaway with the glutathione, which is an antioxidant, it's a tripeptide, you know, antioxidant with that it protects NO and helps keep the vasodilation going or prolongs it or upregulates the pathway in some way. Because uh, NO has a very tiny half-life. I don't know what it is, but it's like ridiculously seconds, tiny. Seconds, I think. Yeah, seconds, I think. So uh, my takeaway from that is L-citrulline uh, as an amino acid may actually be superior to arginine to get this going on. But uh, I, this is my impression, and again, then I'll hand this over. And I, I don't want to take anything away from uh, Darren's talk, but it sounded like there was a lot of mechanisms being explored, a lot of operational things and thought processes and hypothetical concepts. And there wasn't a lot of like, what's really important? Like, so what does NO actually do? If you open up vascular beds, does it improve protein synthesis? Probably not. I mean, unless there's a lot yeah. of insulin, you know, amino acids coming in in that blood, you know. But by itself, vasodilation, I mean, remember at experimental biology, yeah. you and I saw that. I mean, they opened up people's vascular yeah, beds drug. with, yeah, sodium nitroprusside. And I mean, that'll open your vascular beds. Do you fall over? You know, you faint. And no difference in, like, protein synthesis, you know. So, uh, I don't know. It just depends on how you look at this sort of thing. But I, I, to me, it seems strange that you know he would explore all these mechanisms when the outcome, the actual outcome, it's unclear how clinically relevant it is. So we're, he's bending over backwards to look at the molecular underpinnings of NO, hoping that maybe it causes vasodilation and then hoping that maybe that vasodilation means something down the road. Uh, you know what I mean? So it was sort of strange, too. With all the talk of rabbit aortic rings and and glutathione infusions, and, you know, it's all just very indirect, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I thought it was good of him to say, you know, that whilst we have all these proposed mechanisms like, uh, you know, mitochondrial activation being enhanced or protein synthesis being enhanced, that, uh, you know, arguably the, the best pump, the best, you know, pre-workout pump is, is just going to be getting in the gym and working hard. And, you know, that's really what we need to keep our eye on. Let's just touch real quickly, like, well, Mike, I mean, obviously you're the best <laughs> qualified to talk about your talk. I, I actually tweeted a picture of you doing that. <laughs> oh, thank but, you. <laughs> well, because I mean, it, the, a practical track, like when people show up for something practical, you know, so Mike's being an engineer, he's talking about technology and how to use that tech to monitor clients. I mean, you know, this is, we're all walking around with little computers, well, most of us, on, <laughs> on our hips, and, you know, and it just... Someone has a flip phone. <laughs> <clears throat> flip phone. <laughs> but anyway, so I thought that was good. In fact, when you were, t we were talking about this last night over some drinks, but um, Mike's sort of summary toward the end was, if you have $100, these are some products you might want to think of to work to monitor your clients. If you have $250, here's what I would suggest you buy to monitor your clients. You know, So that whole idea is, I mean, it's very hard to control what you don't measure. And I mean, with a computer on your hip all the time, you can measure this stuff, right? So I know, anything you want to uh, highlight? Oh, yeah. So I was doing um, basically online fitness monitoring and different technology aspects. And the couple of the main ones I talked about was heart rate variability. So listeners are probably familiar with that. It's a way to measure your autonomic nervous system to determine if you're more parasympathetic, sort of rest and digest, or are you more sympathetic, so fight or flight. And the nice part about that is the equipment I used to use in the lab to measure that was probably 8 to 10 grand at the time. Now you can get a unit that runs on your phone that's a couple studies coming out this year show that it's very accurate for under $100. If you have a Bluetooth low energy, it's $10 to get the app. Um, so the app I use is through iFleet. So instead of athlete, it's an I. Um, and there's other things like the push device, which is sort of like a Tendo type unit. 
and it just goes on your arm. It's about 150 bucks. You can measure velocity, power, reps, um, and you could equate volume then because it'll measure reps and sets. It'll track the time it takes you to do that. And now they actually have an option. You can track heart rate. So pretty much I looked at it and said, okay, what are the, the physiologic variables for someone training that I would really want to measure? Well, speed, weight, load, what they're doing. And even if I want to get fancy looking at uh, heart rate, I can then determine if they did the same amount of work. They come back next Monday and do that same amount of work at a lower heart rate. That's still a positive cardiovascular adaptation depending upon their goal. Um, and that's like about 150 bucks. So, and there's a couple other things we went over in there too. But yeah, so it's nice that I think in the next year we're going to have so much technology and so many different things that people are just going to get kind of lost in too much data. I mean, even sports teams now have one or two people just to manage all the data coming in, and they're almost stuck with the problem of too much data, right? So if you've got a soccer team and you're measuring every little place around the field and their heart rate and the changes and, you know, how do you take that and make it actually meaningful at that point, so... Okay, with that, everyone, I'm just going to cut in here. Uh, that was sort of a conversation that we we're having on site. So we're going to go to break, and when we come back, we will resume with some of the information from the conference. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press and protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Iron Radio listeners are a unique bunch. You value both in-the-trenches skills and the research and evidence that informs it. That's why, as a listener-supported show, we occasionally do funds drives to keep everything free and advancing. Did you know your donations at www.ironradio.org pay for web servers? They allow for small sponsorships of gifted competitors or students and even partly fund research on our specific population. That's what we're asking for during the spring and early summer funds drive. Dr. Lowry, that's me, and some students are on the verge of some key discoveries involving caffeine and explosive lifts, but we need help to get the message out. If you value the authenticity, expertise, and real progress Iron Radio provides, please consider a donation. Any amount is appreciated, but if you could put forward $25 or more and email Robert Fortney 
at Hotmail.com about it. We'll send you some behind-the-scenes audio lab notes that were recorded during data collection. They offer true insight into what research is like on barbell athletes. Thank you for considering it. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, guys, thanks for joining us again. This is just sort of a Dr. Lowry narrating the whole thing. We're going to get back to the Austin, Texas International Society of Sports Nutrition Conference report. And again, we'll see you next week in our usual format. Okay, let's let's jump to, and again, t- this is taking nothing from Dr. Nelson, but I think the star of this conference in a lot of ways is, is uh, Bob Wolf. Uh, listeners, if you're not familiar with Dr. Wolf, uh, most of the information that we have, I'd say maybe half, uh, is coming out of the stable isotope work of uh, Bob Wolf's lab. So a lot of the stuff about protein needs, whether it's pre-post-exercise nutrient timing of protein or, or daily requirements or this or that, I mean... If it's not coming out of Stu Phillips' lab in the Toronto area, a lot of this is coming out of Bob Wolf's lab, right? So when we tell someone you need 20 to 30 grams of protein to maximize your protein synthesis response, that's his stuff, you know. Uh, or can you do it with just the essential amino acids or do you need whole, you know, com- proteins beyond just the essential amino acids with even all the non-essential, get all 20 amino acids that's his stuff. You know, a lot of the stuff like you hear from Biolo, Tipton, all these famous authors, those that's all his lab. You know, so but he sort of blew the doors off of protein requirements, right? So I was talking about tweeting stuff earlier. Screen after screen, I'm like, oh that's that's gold. Oh, that's gold. I'm just <laughs> taking pictures of this, you know, and I think that's one of the advantages of a big like quasi-lay meeting like this sometimes because, boy, the word gets out fast. Mm-hmm. And listeners, I think in some ways it, we, have to, we have to have some sobering thought that we're being told what we want to hear in a lot of ways, you know, because there's a lot of bodybuilder-type yeah. guys in the audience. And uh, basically uh, his the data he was showing is that we've overlooked uh, the anti-catabolic effects of protein, right, at higher doses – Yes, you, if you eat more than 30 grams, you're not going to continue to increase protein synthesis, but you could substantially decrease protein breakdown. So what all the, you know, quote-unquote dumb meatheads have been doing all these years, maybe they're, you know, even though they're eating far more than the protein synthetic dose, they're, they're preventing muscle loss, right? They're, and the doses are much higher and that sort of thing. Mike, do you want to speak to some of what he was talking about, like doses and... Yeah, so it was, it was pretty crazy. So he was showing the Team Hercules diet um, when the actor was getting ready for the role and was taking in like 500, I think, and 80 grams of protein per day. Um, but what was really interesting is that they have some data that hasn't been published yet. Uh, looking at a beef intake, they compared 40 grams to 70 grams. So we would say from a protein synthetic standpoint, you know, both of those, even for beef protein, are you know, maxing out that. And what they found was that there is a big difference in terms of protein breakdown. So showing that the 70 gram resulted in, you know, not nearly the amount of breakdown as the 40 gram. So therefore your net balance of protein, um, if the study goes forward, was shown to be much higher in the 70 gram. So I can imagine many articles coming out over the next year that'll be like, See, we need, you know, 400 grams of protein again. So I'm sure there'll be lots of those coming out. You guys have to add. Uh, I thought, actually, when he was going over uh, that stuff, I was thinking when I was going through my dietetic uh, rotations and all of my other dietetic interns and, like, my dietetic preceptors were, you know, mocking me for the amount of meat I was ingesting. I'm like, see this now. <laughs> But no, that's cool. The, the other kind of cool thing I'll just hit on really quickly, um, he was uh, talking about 
Um, and again, kind of hypoth- uh, very much on a hypothesis level at this point, you know. And, but uh, in terms of muscle growth, he was speaking about an alternative hypothesis where obviously mTOR is the big thing that every, everyone gets talked about. But he was talking about, you know, um, potentially it's more of tRNAs which have to do with protein synthesis and getting these charged tRNAs might be the, the mechanism that may be driving this. But like I said, he em- emphasized that this was very hypothetical um, and nothing more than hypothesis at this time. Yeah, just let me add something quickly, too. When Sean's talking about tRNA, transfer RNAs, right, they're, they're little molecules that move the appropriate amino acid over to the ribosome factory in the cell so it can actually manufacture actin and myosin or whatever protein, you know, that your nucleus is demanding. You know, that sort of thing. But to think that, yeah, some of the, it's like a weak link. It's like a rate-limiting step. That, and like you said, it might be hypothetical right now, but when someone like Dr. Wolf talks, people listen because he's probably right. You know, yeah. uh, not just because of some politics, but because of the ridiculous depth of knowledge. Like, he would show graphs, and he's like, this is some graphs from a collection of studies we've done, you know, over the last 20 years. And you know what I mean? So he's, he's boiling down these whole studies, each of them probably three to six months or more, and it's just a data point on a graph. He has that kind, that volume of data. of data. Yeah. So, uh, and again, this is the kind of thing you're right, that the dietitians are going to have a meltdown because, you know, <laughs> oh, protein hurts your kidneys and it weakens your bones and this, that, and the other. And, and here Dr. Wolf is coming along and he has a much heavier depth of knowledge, I mean, than the average clinical dietitian. And he's saying, what did he say up to, uh, he did the calculations like... Um, 280 grams a day was this sort of theoretical calculation if you go for you know certain you know hypothetical breakdown and that kind of thing for for a 70 kilo guy yeah oh you know that's a good point that right that's not even a very big that's a 154 pound dude yeah Yeah. and and he said if you were training a lot you know that obviously could be more Oh, right. Training effects too, right? So how, how does all this stuff interact? There's some questions about that, right? Like some, a lot of this protein needs stuff, like how do we get the RDA for protein? That's not in weightlifters. That's not in people that are applying a muscle protein synthetic stimulus, you know? Anyway, so if you think about it though, like it never made much sense when you only look at the protein synthesis side because you're like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I, I max out protein synthesis with a 30 gram dose, whether it's beef or whey protein, whatever it is. It just it, that doesn't seem to be enough compared to what most weightlifters would would consume. But now, if you jump that to seventy, well, now even if you just do breakfast, lunch, dinner, and we all know we do more than breakfast, lunch, dinner, like three squares, you know, now that's three times seventy. There's two ten. Or if you, if you do four meals times seventy, there's your two eighty. You know what I mean? So oh, very quickly, you're multiplying up. And again, I, I, the news on the geeky side, the mechanism, mechanistic side, is that uh, the approach with these huge intakes is that I guess nobody really ever looked because you, you could clearly saturate the protein synthesis, the anabolic side, with maybe 30 grams or so, 20, 30, depending on your age, maybe 40 if you're older. But when you start giving something as seemingly crazy as 70 grams – you start massively suppressing breakdown, and there may be actually more to that side of things. And I was always taught the breakdown side of uh, protein ingestion and you know body weight and all that didn't really matter. And it probably doesn't matter so much if you're doing 10, 20, 30 grams of protein. But you up it to 70, and the amino acid concentrations in cells and all that starts to change the picture. You know, So it's almost like the anti-catabolic. One last thing, too. He, he was careful to point out because of course he gives this a lot of thought that there is a, a calorie and insulin sort That's of presence okay yeah yeah because the the, the 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 caveat is as Lonnie was saying this is only for amino acids this is only for protein and we know that most people don't eat only protein they eat mixed meals carbohydrates and we know that insulin has a very high anti-catabolic effect so it may find out that if we have a smaller amount of protein, we eat that with, say, a fair amount of carbohydrates or other calories, that because insulin is raised now that maybe insulin has enough anti-catabolic action, you can get away with maybe smaller amounts of protein. So I think that's kind of the big caveat, because my understanding was he was only talking about what it would be for protein only based on the studies and the infusion studies and stuff that was done. Well, the, the one thing I would say with uh, um, the study he referenced that's yet to be published with the 40 and 70 grams, yeah, he emphasized, the, you know, th- this, was, this was part of uh, 
a full meal. Like it wasn't yes. it wasn't just here's eighty grams of protein, drink it. Um, it was part of a whole meal. So um, you know, even you know, emphasizing the insulin response, um, but you know, emphasize the fact that still all the calories and everything too is contributing to this. Yeah. One note I had relating to that insulin point was that I said that you know with the amino acid and infusion or you know ingestion with insulin did did show a you know profoundly greater activation of uh, of protein synthesis but what what we call kind of fractional synthesis didn't appear to be affected so just kind of looking at all those different aspects okay you know what and i don't want to take anything away from uh arnie uh, ferrando or uh there were some talks by uh uh, Jake Wilson, Gabe Wilson, they were talking about leucine and that, and we could touch on some of these things, but to me, in the wake of the bomb dropped by Bob Wolf, this, all this other stuff, minuscule. yeah, it was more like a reminder and a review, yeah, a little minuscule maybe, you know, like, is leucine important in a meal, and I think we know that, you know, two or three grams of leucine, trigger the anabolic response, there you go, you know, and that sort of stuff, and again, I don't want to poo-poo that, but uh, I guess in the mic around, does anybody have any thoughts about those talks? Um, the last thing I had is the, the one we had talked about uh, the other night from uh, Dr. Mike Roberts' lab is looking at the effect of, uh, it was a rat model. They anesthetized the rats, I think using isofluorine, had them do some electrically stimulated exercise, gave them, uh, I don't think it was uh, leucine only or a whey protein with the same amount of leucine, and then six hours later dissected out the muscle and what they saw was in the whey protein group, and these were male rats, they found a much higher level of testosterone that was actually bound to the receptor. So they were theorizing that maybe there's something to do with whey protein, possibly you know enhancing maybe a hormonal effect or that type of thing. Again, it's a very early study, but I think there'll be a lot more discussion about that that may be very interesting. Yeah, the... the counter argument to uh you know leucine being the magic bullet amino acid for uh, you know for protein synthesis uh, i i thought it was it was just nice for them to you know remind us or, or kind of describe milk as they uh, the phrase they used was a genetic transfection signaling system for yeah. postnatal growth so really not not just a food but a, a kind of a hormonal player and uh, you know, and, and that counter argument side was uh, kind of you know flagging up you know testosterone signaling uh, from you know whey consumption having having a very powerful anabolic uh, response in the body you know being able to really amplify the the anabolic response so it's just a nice you know different different light to to throw on milk not just a food but a real hormonal player. I think it's an interesting way to look at that. You know what I mean that. I mean, what's the purpose of milk? It's mm. to create massive anabolism. In, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're trying to be anabolic for, for, for kind of different reasons, you know what I mean? But it's, it's funny to think that, you know, resistance trainers are, we're trying to emulate infants <laughs> by being as anabolic as possible. Yeah, it's, it's hard to tease apart the hormonal, like, what's yeah. the role of insulin is... You know, for years, there was always that sort of debate. It seems to be high during times of protein synthesis, but then other people, no, it's mostly an anti-catabolic influence, you know, slowing breakdown. And then how does testosterone play into all that? You know, we, Mike, you and I were talking about how that's sort of controversial. Yeah. Like within normal ranges, what does testosterone really do? I mean, you can get... You, you put, let's say, a middle-aged guy on testosterone replacement therapy or something, and he's not going to look like the cover of a magazine. He might recover a little bit better. His joints might feel better. He might even lose a little bit of body fat. But the supra-physiologic yeah. doses that you see on the cover, you know, that creates that kind of bodybuilder <laughs> look, you know, within a normal range. But it's, it's funny how you can't tease apart, like, leucine is a trigger in itself. It's not just one of the building blocks. You know, it flips the switch. You know, like Phil will say, leucine's like flipping on the light switch, but you've got to have other amino acids around to have, like, electricity coming through the wire. So leucine's a switch, but it's not necessarily the juice coming through the wire, you know. And uh, insulin, testosterone, all, it's, you can't just look at these things in an isolated vacuum, you know. And, like, yes, leucine's a trigger, but then 
I mean, obviously, insulin matters. You know what I mean? I've seen people clinically, yeah. like in, in research and in, in uh, dietetic yeah. settings, man, when they're insulin, I mean, type 1 diabetics that don't take their insulin, they yeah. just melt. Their bodies mm-hmm. melt. Their fat tissue, muscle tissue, you know, so obviously there's hormonal realities to all this too. And these guys do a good job of trying to tease apart one from the other. I mean, some, sometimes what you eat triggers the hormonal state sometimes the hormonal state you're in could affect how much or how much you want to eat or when you want to eat your appetite you know what i mean so it's like a two-way street with nutrients and hormones and whatnot did we was there anything else let's see after the wolf lecture a couple more things i think there's the beta alanine oh right hey did you get anybody see the um polyphenols talk uh i I quickly saw a talk on Polyphenol antioxidants and exercise recovery. Uh, it was sponsored by Kemen or mm-hmm. Kemen, mm-hmm. Uh, Kristen Neiman, and she had to field some pretty harsh responses. I think oh, really? <laughs> afterward, and she was sort of struck. Well, we didn't really measure that. And we didn't measure this, and I, I think the the take home message for me was antioxidants, whether they're phenols or vitamin C, vitamin E, whatever. It, it's still controversial, right? Because there was a time when whether it was for cardiovascular disease prevention, like with vitamin E, or whether it was muscle soreness and recovery. You know, the whole idea is, you know, when a, sore, a muscle is sore, partly because white blood cells, neutrophils get down in there and they secrete oxidant substances. And if you can sort of quench some of that, oh, that inflammation and oxidation, then you recover faster. But things hasn't really panned out. I mean, the American Heart Association's pulled yeah. their recommendations for antioxidants for heart disease. We're talking about how you need a certain amount of reactive oxygen species and oxidative damage and free radicals and inflammation to actually for the muscle to remodel and then grow. And so, you know, the very premise of that talk that phenols, and again, we're talking about like green tea, black tea, blueberries, a lot of the kind of healthy stuff. I don't think anybody's saying they're necessarily bad, but as far as trying to say, oh, look, there's less damage markers in your blood because you drank a lot of tea or you took some of these supplements I don't know. That It just looks very iffy, like if you even want to do that. You know what I mean? Do you even want to blunt that oxidative? She was trying to, I, I think, argue that it's a balance. Like you don't want to have – you're so heavy on the free radical and the oxidative damage that it overwhelms your system and maybe these phenolic supplements could help. I didn't go to the talk, but I'm working on an article for this. But it, it appears that high doses of C and E and sort of – vitamin-ish type stuff, especially in mouse models and that type of thing, appear to have more of a negative effect than, you know, like blueberries, green tea, or different polyphenols. So there may be, I think, a difference between a single taking megadoses of vitamin C post-training versus drinking green tea or making a shake with berries or something like that. And I think that's all still to be sorted out a little bit too. And with antioxidants, I think it's always a very context-specific field. You know, say if you're working with an athlete who's doing a number of events back-to-back and they just need to recover as quick as possible, then, you know, perhaps taking a, you know, a higher dose of antioxidants could serve them. But if someone's in a a longer training period where they're really trying to induce, uh, you know, physical adaptations, then, you know, maybe don't, you know, don't take a supra physiological dose of of antioxidants back off a bit, let them have that inflammation in the body that that induces the, the kind of change and gains that we're looking for. I think uh, it's it's interesting to point out that people naturally upregulate their antioxidant defenses yeah, with training anyway. Exercise. Right. So, I mean, do you need the, the controversy is whether you need to supplement anything specifically at all because you'll have glutathione peroxidase and uh, catalase. There are several enzymes that naturally protect your muscles from the oxidative damage, you know, and so, you know, that's just sort of controversial stuff. Um, okay, we're running out of time here. So there were um, there were a couple other talks uh, oh, the hydration talk. Let's let Sean do that one. So there was a talk on um, the dogma of hydration, liquid calories versus fuel absorption. Thoughts, takeaways, mm-hmm. impressed, not impressed? I don't know. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try to take anything away from the, the presenter at all. Um, I thought a lot of that was kind of going th- through, and in, in terms of it is part of the apply track, and really – the only kind of general takeaway message at the end was, you know, 
keeping in mind that females are not just small males or women are not small men. Um, with their hormonal cycle, they have different demands. I thought some of the ideas weren't necessarily fleshed apart, you know, really strong takeaway points. But just keep in mind that, that women are not small men. Yeah, I think sometimes hydration to some people is almost boring. Like when I teach the water chapter in class, I'm like, I'm really going to talk for about water. <laughs> yeah. Water, you know. Exactly. And yet the essentiality of water is much higher. I mean, you can go for weeks to months without certain vitamins or minerals, and I mean, you wouldn't make it three days without water. So, it, yeah, it is interesting. Uh, I saw a talk toward the end of the day from uh, Jay Hoffman. Uh, Dr. Hoffman, he studies beta alanine, and this was, this was actually military personnel. But I think the cool stuff about this is, like with the creatine stuff, um, beta alanine is showing neuroprotective effects. And so, uh, again, with like the mouse models of, of stress, and you know, they, would, they would literally stress animals. And I, we need animal research, so I don't want to overblow this point. You know what I mean? But they would literally put the animals under psychological tr- stress. So if you want to find out if beta alanine, for example because it raises carnosine levels in muscle and brain tissue apparently and you know has acidity buffering and antioxidant anti-glycating there's all these cool mechanisms by which it works i mean carnosine even um, lab animals live much longer you know so the longevity people like this stuff so neuroprotective longevity it, and again it's like back to the creatine idea all oh, the meatheads are taking this stuff to buffer muscle acid but Oh look, it's actually you know helpful for all kinds of serious situations like PTSD, you know post traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, they take the they took the little mice and they they put them on dirty cat litter to freak them out. <laughs> you know, predator predator scent and that kind of thing. And you know, and they did different maze tests yep. and that sort of stuff. And I I know Corey, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, one? Um, you know, I guess his talk I, I found coolest was the the actual like military personnel research where um he had you know soldiers that would do their training for four weeks while supplementing with beta alanine do a pre-test and a post-test of not only physical things but of actual combat type Hmm. situations so stuff like shoot five rounds run 30 you know run a sprint shoot five more run a sprint shoot five more and then test accuracy um and then what they would do is add a cognitive element to it so in one of the one of the um Tests they would have to do the shooting, but they would do introduce what he called a misfire, where he, they would take one of the bullets in the magazine and turn it oh, around, yeah. and they would have to deal with that under stress at the end of their four week training phase, and their time they they dealt with that, and then accuracy after that was part of the test, hmm, and cool. so the beta alanine supplement soldiers did better hmm. on that. If I, if I can just add real quick, one of the things I thought was cool about that was they went into that looking for performance gains and not really talking yeah. much about the neurological side. And then they're like, you know, the shooting accuracy was enhanced. Or mm. one of the cognitive tests is a serial subtraction yeah, test. Yeah. And I don't know exactly how that ha- happens. I mean, Mike, you're, you know, genius mathematician. This is probably a joke for you. <laughs> but when you're in the middle of, you know, fire, run 30 yards, and then repeat simple math equation, yeah. you know, come up with the right answer. And then they would see how accurate you well, are with yeah, that, you and, know. And one... When on at least one of the studies, when they did that, they had to perform the serial subtraction test after their shooting, but while another soldier was going through their shooting test. So they're trying to think about math sure. with guns firing yeah. right behind them. High so, level background stress. Yeah, exactly. Question: I wasn't at the presentation, but what type of doses of beta alanine were they using for these studies? Yeah, uh, Hoffman used six grams, yeah, so, so two grams three times a day. Mm-hmm. Over the course of about a month, it seems, Hmm, I'm sort of ballparking this, but if you're interested in beta alanine, and some people are very affected, like I am, by that paresthesis, that tingling, you know, but the the, the fascinating (laughs) thing about it, yeah, so six grams over the course of about a month is sort of the standard, let it build up in your tissues, but Mike and I were talking about this yesterday, there doesn't seem to be a ceiling that they've detected yet, like with creatine, we know that, listen, once you're taking 25, 30 grams a day, you really can't push that much harder, you end up with diarrhea because you can't absorb it, or whatever's going on, but with beta alanine, it seems like the more you can handle, probably the better. I'm not telling listeners to go do that, you know. <laughs> but at the same time, because again, yeah. six grams seem to do it. And there's a over the first, I think uh, that first month period, there's a 
dramatic increase in tissue concentrations. Yeah. And again, you're taking the beta alanine because it's a precursor, to, again, to carnosine, not carnitine, carnosine, and it's a muscle acidity buffer. But like I said, the fascinating thing is it's, it's helping your, your brain and your nervous system at the same time. So like there are some things that might be ergogenic, like caffeine, but it may actually worsen control the control side of things. Yeah. Like, you know, these yeah. are guys who have to be on the mark, not just with output, but controlling that output. Yeah, and, and just just in general, their performance under stress. You know, some of the things he was talking about kind of reminded me of phosphatidylserine, yeah. of being able to, to perform better in a stressful situation, which I thought, that's, you know, that's really interesting. Yeah, so um, the, some of the themes then, one is that, Mike, you've said this before, protein good, mmm. <laughs> <laughs> And another one, uh, another one is that antioxidants still controversial, but and then um, again, very thematic. But I think creatine and beta alanine, things that weightlifters use for muscle building purposes, are neuroprotective. I mean, some of the stuff Corey we just saw helping with post traumatic stress disorder. Uh, they're, they're anxiolytic. They're antidepressant, and if not by themselves, they may help medications that do those things work better. So uh, general health, longevity, nervous system protection, cognition, yeah. wow. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, these don't have to necessarily be real expensive. I don't know what beta alanine is going for these days. Pretty cheap now. Uh, yeah. Creatine's become really quite yeah. cheap. I don't know why anybody, frankly, would not, you Pretty know, cheap. would not be considering this stuff because quite the opposite of what we were saying with, like, young Johnny, oh, my goodness, I'm concerned he's on creatine. Why on earth are you concerned about that? Like you said, Mike, so I mean, you're, you're letting him butt heads, ram heads full yeah. speed with other kids, and that's okay with you, but it's not okay for him to take a non-essential nutrient like creatine. No, it's not a steroid. You know, your body treats it more or less like a carbohydrate, you know. Muscle contractions help with the uptake. There's transporters for it. it water follows it into the muscle. You know what I mean? And there's all, it's almost like we're trying to find fault with supplements. Oh, they cause cramping or kidney, kidney stress or this or that. Or, you know what? When there's hundreds of patients, I mean, I think 10 years ago, Kreider, uh, Rick Kreider, we were talking about his, his creatine update. He said there was over 350 studies on creatine with a 75% consensus that it's safe and effective for yeah. all different kinds of repeat explosive performance. What kind of medications have such a boast, you know, with a yeah. 75% consensus in the literature? You I know. looked last month on PubMed for creatine monohydrate, and I think I came up with 432 studies. Oh, man. So, I mean, yeah. Probably more studied than yeah. almost any nutrient, right? By far. So cool stuff. Uh, I, in some ways, I think for many listeners, keep doing what you're doing. You know, uh, protein's probably a good thing. Creatine, maybe consider beta alanine if you haven't tried that. Uh, we got one more day worth of talks. Like I said, we might actually get to some of these and record something. If not, uh, at least you've got something for this week. Uh, so I guess until next time. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. So we try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the 
bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.